So last week, we talked about how faith gives up. This week, we're going to be talking about faith never giving up. Make sense? Great. I'm glad it does. <laughs> Hopefully by the end of this sermon, as we wrap up the book of James, it'll all make sense to you. And we want to look at both of those things today, continue looking at how faith gives up power, and then move into how faith never gives up hope. But before we do that, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will open to James chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus, thank you. Thanks that we get the chance to just look at your word and to understand these two things. Holy Spirit, we're going to need you as uh, we often find ourselves hopeless, and we don't want to give up on that hope. As we look at your word today, would you just speak, Holy Spirit, to our hearts, um, help us in these things that we need to give up and these things that we need to replace those things we give up with. Speak, Holy Spirit, for we are listening. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. James chapter 4, verse 10 says this, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. That first part is us giving up. Faith gives up power. It's literally what James is calling us to do. Humble ourselves before the Lord. Andrew did a great job last week helping us understand what that looks like and how we give up on our perspective. We give up the power in these things. But see, James wasn't settled enough just to say, give up. He wanted to give us some specifics. And so those specifics come in this next section in the form of warnings. He gives us three different warnings and how we can give up power. The first one is found here in verse 11. It says this, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? You see, when we judge others, uh, we cling to a power that isn't ours. Well, there's, there's two things we actually do when we do that. Uh, the first is we break the royal law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you're also at the same time judging them. They can't coexist. But the other thing we do, the second thing we do is, is we take the seat that only God sits in. We take the power back from him as judge. Judge is his seat. I read this this past week. There is only one author of the law, one judge over the law, and one savior from the law. And let me just remind us today that we are none of the three of those. And so when we take that seat, we're taking back power that's not ours. Faith has to give up that power, and when it comes to judging others, that's God's job, not ours. And we can't love our neighbor if we're also simultaneously judging our neighbor. And so faith gives up power when it comes to judging others. There's that warning. The next warning is found in verse 13. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. 
What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. The second warning is about our self-confidence. We're supposed to give up power when it comes to our self-confidence. Again, something I read this past week, the self-confident person is self-assertive in his travel plans, the self-confident in his time schedule, and self-centered in his financial relationships, which can all be plans that are made apart from God. You see, the problem was when our self-confidence is boosted, we're no longer humbling ourselves before the Lord. Instead, we're still clinging to and finding power in what we can do. And it's not about what we can do. Hear me say this. It's a good thing to plan for the future. But whether it's lunch today or our 401k tomorrow, that's in God's hands. And we have to trust him with those things. We have to humble ourselves and give those things back to him. And the reason James says that is because our life, our life is like a morning fog. It's here for a moment. It's gone as quickly as it came. And you see, the problem with that is, is that when we we're self-confident, we often make plans apart from God. We leave this Christian worldview behind. And Charles Spurgeon puts it the best way that I can think of to put it. He says this, there are two great certainties about the things that shall come to pass. One is that God knows, and the other is that we don't know. You see, God's the one who has that power. He's the one who knows. And so as we give up our self-confidence and the power that comes from that, what we do is we place uh, our future, we give up our future, uh, the things that we don't know about, into the hands of the one who does. We serve a God who knows our future. And we can trust him with that. And so for us to give up power, uh, it looks like that when we give up power in judging others, it gives up power when we're in our self-confidence. And then this third place where we give up power. But before we get to that, I don't want to miss this because verse 17 is so important for us, especially when it comes to the book of James. Verse 17 says this, remember, it's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. If I could take one verse out of James and sum up James, this would be the verse. Because if you know what you ought to do and you walk away from a worship service and a teaching time and you know what you ought to do and don't do it, that is sin. I think it was two weeks ago I preached on um, how we have to tame our tongue. And we were talking about, and I even gave the illustration example that we can, in one hour, worship the Lord with our tongues, and in the next hour, be at lunch where we have the world's worst server and curse his creation, that person who is created in God's own image as our server. I kid you not, I can't make stuff like this up. I I wish I could, but um, that afternoon, I got a text from Amber Pierre, and she had said that that her family went to lunch at an unnamed restaurant here in Noblesville, and, and they placed their order with their server and then didn't see their server for a solid amount of time. They were waiting and waiting, and, and they didn't even see their server moving around the restaurant. And finally, the manager came to their table and said, have you guys placed your order? Have you been served? And, and they responded, yeah, we've, we've already put our order in, and, and we've been waiting, but we haven't seen our server. 
And then the manager said this, well, it, it seems as if your server took your order, never plugged it in, and then quit, got in their car, and drove home. Literally, the, the exact illustration I had given that day had taken place for the Pierres. And, and the manager asked, do you want to go ahead and place your order? Uh, to which they said, no, we'll go to another restaurant. And before they got up from the table, Steve, Amber's husband, told their family and their kids, we all heard the sermon today. Let's watch what we're going to say. And Amber told me that they all got up, went to the car, drove to the next restaurant in complete silence because they knew it's a sin to know what you ought to do and not do it. And they were going to do it. They had heard that day to, to, to praise the Lord with their tongue and be careful how they use it after service. And they did just that. But you see, this third warning is another warning for us when it comes to giving up power, faith that gives up power. And it's talking about the comforts of this life, the riches that we have. It says this in chapter 5, verse 1. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away at your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure that you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. The first two warnings, I don't, if you read quickly, you'd miss this. I missed this the first time I read through it. The first two warnings come from James with a, a reproof, a, a, a thing that we could replace with. This one does not. This one only comes with a very ugly warning that this corroded treasure that you've hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. The truth is, is that, that our riches, we know we can't serve both money and the Lord. Our riches will get in the way of us being able to serve him in the way he wants us to serve him. And so we have to give up the power. Listen, money, riches, th that's not the evil. Evil is the power that money and riches gives us. And when we heighten that power and we're not willing to give that power up, that's what gets in the way of our relationship with the Lord. A faith that works is a faith that gives up that power, that riches brings us. Now, understand the context of this passage. The context, these people have made their riches and their wealth off of those whom they've cheated. And that might not be true of you and I today, but the truth that we have riches and that at the end of time, your wealth will be rotting away, your, your garments will be moth-eaten, and your gold will be corroded is true. I mean, you've heard it said that you don't see a U-Haul following behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. So why not in this moment, go ahead and give it up to the Lord. Practice your faith. Make your faith work by giving that up. It's interesting that James, um, you know, psychology would say today that you can't just give up a bad habit. And James in this moment says, hey, faith that gives up power gives up uh, our self-confidence. It gives up judging others. It gives up our riches. 
But then he also goes straight into three things that we can never give up. It's almost as if James knew modern psychology, that we can't just quit a bad habit, but it's got to be replaced with a better one. And so James continues into, and he says, hey, here, here's the first part, you know, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. And this is how you can do that with, um, with your judging others and your self-confidence and your riches. But now this is what it looks like that, that he will lift you up in honor, that faith never gives up hope. That's our hope, that, that he will lift us up in honor. And so how do we cling to that hope? And he goes on to say, here's the three ways you can cling to that hope. Hope in patience and endurance. Verse 7 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains to fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endured under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Uh, just simply say yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. James says, hey, this is how you can never give up hope. Never give up hope in the patience and endurance that you are walking with every day of your life. We are waiting patiently for the Lord to return. And as we do so, it's doing something in us. He gives us an illustration that should be familiar to us in the state of Indiana, the farmer. My father-in-law is a farmer, and I watch him go through this every single year. He, he tends to the ground, prepares it, he plants seed, he fertilizes it. But then once he's gotten all of that done, there's nothing for him to do other than to be patient and wait. We, we pray earnestly that it would rain when it needs to rain, and we pray earnestly when, that to, for it to not to rain so that his fields would be perfect and they would ripen and they would, they would produce the harvest in which he desires. And that's what James equates this patient endurance of Jesus coming back to. We know it's going to happen. We're guaranteed that it's going to happen at some point. But our job is to patiently wait and as we do, James even says, like, look at the ones who've come before us. It's not like we're the first to have to pay, be patient and endure. And in fact, those who came before us, they suffered. He says, look at the great examples of those who suffered in patience and endurance. The prophets, if you think about the prophets over and over, they come to share what God has told them to tell the people of Israel. And they suffer as a result of it. I know you know that I feel this way about this question, but I, I really don't love the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Because Jesus promised it would happen. Because Jesus said, this world's going to hate you because you are connected to and related to me. And so we should expect suffering through this life, but we don't suffer alone. Jesus is with us in that. And, and God's going to honor that suffering that we walk through. And he says, for a great example of those who endured under suffering, uh, look at Job. 
Do you remember the story of Job? Job had everything, and yet God tested his uh, trust and faith in God himself by taking everything from him. He took his family. He took his livestock. He took his servants. And, And as Job consults his friends, his friends say, hey, just curse the Lord and die already. And Job says, no, I can't, that, I can't do that. It's not how this works. And Job doesn't curse the Lord. He says, hey, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And then what does James say about Job at the end of his life? You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. We're told in the book of Job that God gave him twice as much as he had previous to everything being taken away from him because of his patience and endurance. We have great hope that we have a God who will provide for us even in our suffering. And so we we never give up hope when it comes to patience and endurance. And, And the next one that James offers is this, that we never give up hope when it comes to the power of prayer. Verse 13 in chapter 5 says this, Are any of you suffering hardships? you should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. Faith never gives up hope when it comes to prayer. He says, are you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are you happy? You should pray and give praise to God and thank him for why you're happy. Are you sick? You should call on the church to pray for you. And listen, this is something that I love to do. I love to go and pray for those who are having surgeries or who are sick in the hospital. But not only do we pray for that, but I think James was also referring to just spiritual sickness. Are you spiritually struggling? Call on the church to pray for you. That is why we are here and what we would love to do. And the reason we do that is because we're promised that it'll produce results. James says uh, that such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick. The Lord will make you well. I mean, that is amazing that if we call on others to pray for us, that the Lord will actually bring us healing through that. But this next part is the part that as I I processed through it this past week, I thought like, what if James was here and was saying this to us? Because I think if James was here, he would be surprised by how we would receive this next line. James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You see, I don't think that in our culture we're in the habit of confessing our sins to each other. In fact, I think James would be astonished by how much we don't confess our sins to each other. Why do we not do that? Because we want to look like we have it together, right? You've been in the car headed to church before where you're like, Kids, stop it! Be quiet! Quit fighting! Don't touch each other! And then you get out of the car and you see somebody in the parking lot like, Hey! 
Hey, happy Sunday. It's so good to see you, right? I mean, you've experienced that before. We walk into church and we put our church faces on. When the truth is, it's almost as if James is assuming that you and I are sinners because we are. Right? Every single one of us are sinners who to walk in and pretend like we're not doesn't do any of us any favors. In fact, when you choose not to confess your sin to another, I want you to to understand what you do to yourself. When you choose not to confess your sin to another, you take this away from yourself. Because it says in the very next line, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. You are withholding from yourself great power and wonderful results when you're not willing to confess your sins to another. I'm asking you to find somebody that you can confess your sins to, to trust enough to be praying for you, and to to, to come alongside and help you walk closer with Jesus. We can't give up hope on prayer because prayer does something for us. Elijah was, uh, I love how he says it, Elijah was a human just like you and I. He's just one of us, but his earnest prayer that it would stop raining stopped the rain. It makes me wonder, when was the last time I earnestly prayed for something? Questions I think that you should probably uh, wrestle with is, uh, what is your prayer life like? What are you praying for? Uh, or better question, is what you're praying for not going to happen unless God intercedes? Right? I, I'm all for praying that my food would bless my body, but I want to be praying big prayers. I want to be praying things that unless God does something, it's not going to be answered and nothing's going to change. Those are the things that these kind of prayers are talking about. That's what James is referring to. So he says, never give up hope when it comes to patience and endurance. Never give up hope when it comes to prayer and never give up hope when it comes to a wandering believer. Verse 19, Dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you has wandered away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. You see, we can never give up hope for a wandering believer. My brother-in-law says it best. He's a pastor in Illinois. And he says, if we don't pursue God intentionally, we're going to drift accidentally. I don't think uh, most Christians wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to drift accidentally from my relationship with the Lord. It just happens to us. And the truth is, is that most of the time when it happens, one of your brothers and sisters, someone whom you're close to, someone in your small group or your family, they can see it happen. They're they're watching it take place. The question is, are you going to take the initiative of as a person who's watching one of your fellow believers drift to address it? And let me remind you of verse 17 in chapter 4. Remember, it's a, a sin to know what you ought to do and not do it. It's a sin for us to see a brother and sister drifting from the Lord and not address that. Is is it going to be awkward? Probably. Is it going to be hard and messy? Yeah, absolutely. Working with people is messy. But listen to the reward of what takes place if we bring that person back into the fold. It says, you can be sure that whoever brings that sinner 
back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Man, in the long run, as you look at the span of life, is it worth it to to pursue that person and have a hard conversation to bring them back into the fold of God, to save them from death, to cover a multitude of sins? Man, I think it's worth it every single time. And so while James tells us, hey, you, you have to give up power. You have to give up power when it comes to judging others. You have to give up power when it comes to your self-confidence. You have to give up power when it comes to your riches. He knows we can't just give up those things and just stop them cold turkey. He says, hey, I want you to replace them with never giving up hope and never giving up hope and patience endurance, never giving up hope and prayer, never giving up hope bringing wandering believers back into the fold. You see, that's, that's the contradiction and the back and forth between the tail end of the book of James. Faith that works gives up power, and faith that works never gives up hope. I have a beautiful story I want to share with you, a testimony, a video of Josh's story. Now, I'm pretty confident that I can say that uh, most of us, if not all, don't share in the story that Josh has. But as I watch Josh's story over and over this past week, more and more do I realize it connects directly into what we're teaching today. There's uh, the prayers of an earnest person who's walking with him. Uh, There's a bringing back of someone into uh, the fold. Uh, There's uh, walking away from my self-confidence and just being honest with uh, confessing of my sin and and what I am and where I've been. Man, Josh's story in so many ways encapsulates, encapsulates how faith works when it comes to never giving up hope. Check this out. My life before I met Jesus, um, around about just complete chaos, um, unstable, just in a life full of no meaning. I was incarcerated in 2019. Somebody says, rock bottom, I mean, that's, you're, you're there when you're there. Basically, I met with the chaplain and he invited me to t- come pray with him, maybe come to service. And found myself quite fond of the book of James. And I read that many times over and over. That particular book spoke to me in ways that I don't understand yet. I've come to appreciate how far I've come. There's so much that it, you could take for granted. I used to pray for patience a lot. Boy, he has thrown anything he could, I think, in the last couple years to show me that I can have patience, but uh, I have to want them. I just was always taught to be good, be kind to the others, um, treat somebody as you would want to be treated, and just try to be caring to people, whether you know them or not. I see young, younger generation today that are in a way, way different world than I was at their age, and they are headed down the same path that I was, but it's a lot more scary. It's a lot more scary risks. I think that being like a drug counselor or somebody that can help guide somebody younger would be good, but I feel that I need to be in a completely best spot for myself before I can ever help anybody. I'm not ashamed anymore. I'm doing what I need to do to better myself and 
somebody asks, I'm not, yeah, I'm at work early. Yes, I've made mistakes. I've come to terms that being ashamed of it or trying to hide it is not doing you any good. It's not doing you any favors. It just means that you are not willing to accept or take the step forward in doing something better for yourself. If you're gonna lie to yourself and lie to others, how are you ever gonna change? I know that I'm in a much better place these days and much happier and my family sees it. I see it. I know where I wanna be in the future. And like when I come here on Sundays, the singing, I found like my first game, I felt awkward sitting there singing. I mean, I still don't sing, but I try to, what is it? Not mumble, but I sing to myself and I enjoy it. Yeah, my mother and my um, grandmother was here last Sunday with me. I haven't seen her in two years and like um, the weekend before during the communion and the prayer and the thanking him, I found myself so overwhelmed with joy. Like I actually <laughs> caught myself like tearing up a little bit during and it's like, was anybody looking? Then oh, who cares? <laughs> Having her here and sharing that moment with her was great because it was the first time I've ever been in church with my grandmother. So that was definitely a, a memory that I will n never take, take for granted, for sure. Because we've never been to church together. It was a very good day, very good day. I didn't want it to end.